Please open it again. So if you've got it in front of you, we're going to read from Jonah 4, but I want to actually just pick up from the last verse of Jonah 3. If you have not been with us up to now, you don't know the story. This is the story of a Jewish guy being sent as a missionary to go and preach to a foreign city, a city called Nineveh. And you can find the remains of it still. It's been dug up by archaeologists. It's in modern-day Syria or Iraq. Oh, I actually don't know. That's embarrassing. It's somewhere around that area in the Levant. And uh, it was in the ancient uh, empire, the, the Syrian Empire, uh, Assyrian Empire. And um, this was one of the greatest cities on the planet. Jonah's first response when God tells us to go and preach is he says, No way. He runs in exactly the opposite direction. He gets on a boat. He flees his way into the, into the Mediterranean Sea. And then God ensures that things go wrong for him from there. Until, by hook or by crook, he's brought back to land. He's then recommissioned to go and preach to the city. He's just done that. He's just gone and preached to this great city of pagans, people who don't know anything about God. And a revival's broken out. In other words, there's been a mass response. People actually believed what he had to say, and they've, they've repented, which is weird, because you know, if I was to go and preach like Jonah in London, I doubt very much, you know, walking around the streets preaching the message he preached, that people would respond like they did in Nineveh. But we said last week, this is just how sometimes God works. There are just occasions in history when his power just breaks out, and whole cities are, are transformed. And this is one of the most remarkable examples of that. It ended with these people repenting. We'll read the last verse of Jonah 3. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. If the book had ended there, Jonah would have been a hero. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's the only time in the Bible I'm aware that that common phrasing is used as an accusation against God. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Well, when you think back on this book, what do you think this book is mainly about? It ought to be about God's work in a city, right? city of Nineveh. It turns out it's about God's work in one man's life, this guy Jonah. And I think where it leaves us, it's incredibly important for us when we think about what our lives amount to, what we're living for, where we're going, what we value. Where it leaves us is with this thought, that God is not so much interested in our success in life than he's interested in our character, what he's making of us, what he's causing us to grow into and become. Because Jonah, by any measure, was probably the most successful preacher the world's ever seen, the most dynamically gifted missionary the world's ever seen, and yet his own book ends in this tragic failure of character, and the fact that it ends there tells you that that's what God wants you to remember, take note of. It tells you that this is what God's most interested in. Could have ended at the end of chapter 3, revival in Nineveh, and just forgotten about Jonah and his failures from that point on. It doesn't. God is bringing our attention to this guy. He's zooming back in on the individual because God is interested in your heart, your character. And uh, it shows us that God's job isn't finished. He's, he, he's not finished when he's seen the whole of Nineveh repent and turn to him. He cares about this little guy, Jonah, this awkward, stubborn little man. And that actually encourages me because it tells me that God's interested in my character. He's interested in your character. And here's the thing you've got to, I want you to wrestle with as we look at what this chapter is about today. That you can be a great success by any measure and fail at life if your holiness is not the most important thing. Now, I know this can be put to a little bit of an extreme in this way. I've often heard people say this, that the only thing you take with you into eternity is your character. So it's the only thing that matters. And actually, I don't really agree with that. I think a lot of what we're called to do in life, the stuff that we work on, the stuff that we're called to achieve for God, matters to God and has an eternal lasting significance. But nevertheless, there's still some, some element, some seed of truth to it, isn't there? Do you remember... You've heard this many times at weddings, which always is a very confusing thing. But that famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where, he talk, where Paul's talking about God's priority for love. And he says things like this. He says, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but haven't loved, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and this is Jonah. I mean, it could be written about Jonah. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And it just finishes, that chapter finishes by saying, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. In other words, God is very much more interested in the state of your heart than your abilities, your gifts, your success in life. Is that actually registered in your, when you think about your Christian life, if you indeed are a Christian? Another passage in 1 Peter um, tells us what God's intention is for us. He says, it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. 
He's saying one of the greatest reasons that God has saved you, what he's called you for to, to do with you, is to make you like himself, to make you holy. So I say it again. God is interested in your character much more than the things that we think of as success in life. And so, while Jonah tells us that God cares about mission, and we'd be amiss not to talk about you know, the resonances between Jonah's call to go to Nineveh and our call to be in this great dark city of London bringing the light of the gospel, actually, the bottom line is that God is more interested in his missionaries, his people, and the state of your heart than your success in life. And so this chapter, we're going to uncover a few of the things which God puts his finger on in Jonah's heart, which I'm confident will, will resonate with you, is things that you know, we need to be aware of, repent from, three kind of areas of sin where he wants to bring about godliness. And they are to do with pride, comfort, and indifference. Pride, comfort, and indifference. First of all, pride. God exposes pride, but he loves humility. Ask yourself this, why is Jonah so unhappy in his seemingly successful mission trip? He's preached to the city, the whole city has come to believe in the God that he's preached about. Jonah is depressed so that he wants to die. Why? Well, the obvious answer is that Jonah actually wanted the city to be nuked. You know, as the story unfolds, he sets up a little a viewing space for himself just outside the city so we can watch God destroy the city. That's what he cares about. So for the city to survive is actually a failure in Jonah's eyes. He thinks, my mission has failed. I came to preach destruction. I wanted to see destruction. Now, this points to pride above all in Jonah's heart in a few ways. And I want us just to uncover and think about these, these, this dynamic of pride in the heart. And the first is that it shows us a pride in his fear of failure. Now, this is a bit of a mind-bender, so just bear with me here for a second. What is the most important thing for a prophet like Jonah, any other prophet? The most important thing, the core of his identity, his, his sense that I am a prophet of the living God, is that people should see that he genuinely hears from God and admire him for it. And when the city doesn't get destroyed, it casts all kinds of doubts on Jonah's genuineness as a prophet. I think that's part of it. How, in other words, you imagine him. He's, he's left Israel. He's gone hundreds and hundreds of miles to go into this city and he's gone and everyone's known he's gone he's left the village he's gone to go and preach in Nineveh and he comes back and how humiliating that he went to preach destruction and Nineveh wasn't destroyed and so at the root of his anger his frustration his pride in his sense of being presented as a failure before the eyes of men and doesn't that just ring true with all of us that we care so much what people think about us there's pride in his fear of failure. There's pride in his sense of superiority. Jonah is a racist prophet. There's no other way you can describe him. He despises the people that he's preaching to. He hates them. He's a racist prophet, and he forgets that the Israelites were not particularly special people. He's an Israelite, but God chose them 
by his grace, by his love. And for no, no particular desirable reason in themselves. And he thinks that he's somehow better than the people he's been preaching to. So he has pride in his fear of failure, pride in his superiority, and pride in his sense of self-righteousness. What do I mean here? That he thinks that he ought to be held to a different standard than the people he's been preaching to. So you know in that verse, in verse 2, where he says, he explains to God why he ran away in the first place. He says, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? I made haste to flee to Tarshish because I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. I ran away, he's saying, because firstly, I knew that you wouldn't follow through on this. It's just like you, God, to be nice to people. You can't help yourself. I ran away because I knew that if I went and preached to Nineveh, you wouldn't judge them, you'd be kind to them. And I want them to be judged. But there's also this element to it. I ran away because I knew that you wouldn't ultimately judge me for running away. In other words, Jonah is happy to take advantage of the grace of God as long as it benefits him, but doesn't give two hoots for these needy people and their need to taste the grace of God, his kindness. Obviously, I, you know, I hardly need to labor the point. But this kind of pride that sits deep in the human heart is a great enemy to mission. The pride that expresses itself as a fear of failure. How easily we care more about what people think of us than we care about their eternity. Now, when I say that, I think it's true of me. To my shame, I think there are times in my life when I care far more about what people think of me than I care about their eternity. And so we have this deep-rooted pride in how people perceive us. We have this deep-rooted pride in, in, the, in the superiority that Jonah has. That we, we hold back from sharing the gospel with people because we just think there's no way that they would ever respond and so like Jeremy put it a few weeks ago, we say people's no for them. We refuse to even invite them to come and know the Savior because we, we say they're no for them. Before we've even told them, we've decided in our minds, they could never respond. They would never want to know about this grace or they would, they would reject it or you know, they're beyond God's grace. Whatever it is that goes through our heads. Whenever we hesitate, we, there's a kind of a superiority thing going on there because, friend, why do you think you responded to the grace of God? Was it because you were better, more suitable? No way. It's because God smashed through your barriers. It's because God rescued you. It wasn't because you were better than other people. I love it when God totally breaks our conceptions of what's possible in the kinds of people he saves, right? We have this same pride as well in, in our tendency to harbor grudges against people. Jonah was against Nineveh. So that, you know, who of us has not been in a situation where we so disliked somebody, maybe a colleague or a boss or whatever, that being a good witness to that person is way down our priority list compared with just holding a grudge against them or gossiping about them or whatever, right? So we look at Jonah from the outside and we think, this guy is such, you know, I don't want to say the word because, you know, I'm going to say something naughty. He's, 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 
he's not a good man. And then you, you turn the lens, you turn the spotlight back on your own heart and you think, who of us isn't a little bit like Jonah in, in the core, right? You know, is anyone here truly selfless and pride-free? I'm not saying you'd celebrate if Nineveh was nuked, but, you know, just our, our resistance to that selfless humility. So Michael Eaton put it like this. He says, you cannot be choosy about your converts. The gospel has to be preached indiscriminately. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it's, there's a line that says, I'm assured of better things in you. Friends, when I look across our church, that is my confident thing, my confident assurance. I'm assured of better things in you. I don't think that any of us are as bad as this guy. <laughs> Praise God. And we have tasted the grace of God in his saving us and conquering our hearts and forgiving us freely. And grace begins to reverse all of these tendencies in the human heart. You think about how grace kills the desire for success and the fear of failure. Because suddenly we realize our lives are not built on our own success. They're built on what Christ has done for us. Totally pulls the rug out from the power of the fear of failure in your life. You think about how the grace of God, his free love and mercy to you, undoes your sense of superiority. Because, you know, there's those verses in, the, in 1 Peter where he says that we were, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You look around the room and you think, none of us got into this family by any sense of our hereditary inheritance or, or who we were, why, why we were being born into it in a sense. It was because we were outsiders and God brought us in. Which means that any of those outsiders can be brought in. And if the grace of the gospel begins to undo our sense of, 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 uh, of self-righteousness as well, because like Paul, you begin to say, the more you encounter the holiness of God, the more you realize I'm the worst of sinners. You know, I feel this often, the sense of unworthiness to be someone who, who leaves a church or comes and preaches before you because the Holy Spirit just puts his spotlight on, on my heart and just shows me the stuff inside. And you think, the more that you're confronted by the holiness of God, the more you say, I'm the worst of sinners. But praise God that it, it brings us to deeper and more sincere humility. God exposes pride. But he loves humility. Here's the second thing. God exposes comfort. But he loves self-denial. Now, ask yourself this question. When you look at your own life, what do you think is the greatest threat to your sacrificial obedience to Jesus? I mean, no holds barred. I will go anywhere, do anything, give anything for the sake of the gospel. What's the thing that stops us most of the time? Is it the fear of what might happen to us, fear of persecution or whatever? I doubt it. You know, I know that there are parts of the world where that is really the biggest thing, but it, that's not the case for us, right? Is it, is it a consciousness of your own wrestling with particular overt sins in your life? No, I doubt it because you hate them, right? You hate your own sense of failure in certain areas. I think the reason why we don't live often more self-sacrificial lives is something way more subtle than that. It's the alluring, sedative effect of living comfortable, easy lives. The kind of prosperity we enjoy. 
And that is exactly what God exposes in Jonah. First of all, by giving him comfort. So you know how it said in, in verse 6 that God, he gave him a plant, which doesn't sound like a particularly awesome gift, but when you're sat in the desert, I'm sure it's a very welcome thing. It says, it grew up over him that it might shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So God give, gave him comfort. He, he suddenly, he made his bed, he made it easy for him. It's like he was sat down in his perfect cinema seat, ready to watch the destruction on Nineveh. With his Diet Coke in one hand and his box of popcorn in the other. And you know, it's such a bizarre picture, isn't it? Because Jonah's there, excited to watch Armageddon, and the king of Nineveh is there in dust and ashes, wearing sackcloth, humbling himself before the living God. And we're, there, we're seeing this massive contrast between these two different characters and these two different situations. And we look at it and we think, how utterly ridiculous. There he is in his comfortable you know, viewing spot while the city, you know, for his, in his heart, is, about to be, is hopefully going to be destroyed. He's hoping God answers that prayer. And then I think to myself, my goodness, I'm not sure that that is all that ridiculous. When I look at my life, when I look at so many Christians, who we do care more about our comforts than we do about the city we're in. We do care more about our wealth and having our homes and having our kids in the right schools and having all the things that make life livable, more enjoyable. And somehow I look at myself and think, I, I think sometimes I care more about that stuff than I do about this city. I might not be so gauche about it. I might not be so obvious about it. But look at what it is that we obsess about, run after. So God exposes it in his heart by giving him comfort and then by ripping it away from him. This is how God loves to expose what's going on in our hearts. Because the second thing he did is he, he create, he's made a plant, so it's not hard for him to make a worm. A worm comes, eats the plant, then a wind comes and the sun comes, beats down the plant, and Jonah's sat there in the sun again going, No! And he's feeling absolutely heartbroken at God's cruelty to him in taking away his, his shade. And I think God's intention there is to reveal the comfort idol in Jonah's heart, and, and really in us as well. And it comes out in a couple of ways. Think about this. Firstly, that his moods, his emotions are conditional on his comfort, not on the state of that city. You see the mood swings that go on in this chapter. I love it, how open it is in describing Jonah's emotional life. Verse 1, this displeased Jonah exceedingly that Nineveh should be surviving. And then he says, verse 3, it's better for me to die than to live. And then verse 6, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Suddenly the mood lifts. He's so happy. He's like, this is, this is the life. And then the plant dies and he says, it's better for me to die than to live. And then God says to him, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I just picture at this point a kind of, you know, Will Ferrell's Anchorman character, you know. And he's just like, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. He's so utterly cast down because of the death of this plant. Now, emotions are fine, right? 
and our emotions are so bound up with the things that we enjoy on a day-to-day basis, the comforts, right? But God's question is so piercing. He asks him twice in two different ways. Firstly, do you do well to be angry? And then, do you do well to be angry about the plant? Imagine God turning that question on you about the things that you've been miserable about lately. Do you do well to be angry? It shows how our emotions are so massively askew, massively awry, that we, we get all, get our knickers in a twist about silly things. And the big stuff washes over us. And I'm a, a mature Christian, I think, is somebody who begins to feel what Christ feels. Remember how Christ wept over the city of Jerusalem? Jonah should have been that guy, but he cared more about his plant. When our moods are so controlled by our comfort, it just shows how childish we are. We're not grown-ups. And, you know, I'm not sure how the God's going to take the world with children. Immature people. His moods are conditional on his comfort, but also this. Look, his love is attached to the source of his comfort. What do I mean? That he's all bound up with the fate of his plant. So when God says to him, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I'm not sure that Jonah really cares about the plant as such. I'm not sure that you can get particularly emotionally attached to a plant. I think what's going on is something much more reflexive there, that he's, he cares about himself. And this is the thing about comfort, that the reason we love stuff The reason why we love to have cushy lives is not because we love the stuff, but because we love ourselves. Our attachment to earthly possessions is our attachment to ourselves, isn't it? And Christ, you look at what a contrast there is between Jonah and Jesus. We talked about their similarities and their differences. Both of them are kind of savior figures who die and rise from the dead three days later. But how different they are in their hearts. You look at Jesus, how he shunned the things that he could have had so that he could reach more people. One man came up to him one day and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. I want to be your disciple, Jesus. And he says, foxes of holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus modeled for us a life that shuns comforts that lull you to sleep spiritually so that he could set the spiritual temperature for us. You want to run after me? This is what your life needs to look like. You need to be prepared to give up anything, go anywhere for the sake of this gospel. I think in many ways we're much the same as Jonah. Speak for myself. But I think the more, I can't prove this, but I think we, the more we love stuff, generally, the, the less we love people. I, I felt this around home to me about 10 days ago when um, I was looking after, I was, it was daddy daycare, so I was looking after my two kids. And Seth ran through excited, saying, Daddy, I fixed the DVD. <laughs> uh, I didn't have a DVD. I didn't know what he was talking about. I think he was a bit confused. So I went through and I was like, what are you talking about, Seth? And he led me over to my pair of beautiful Bowers and Wilkins speakers that I've owned for 
many years and treasured. I bought them secondhand, but they were an amazing deal. They sound absolutely gorgeous. I pulled the grill off the front of them to see that his little finger had just found a nice thing for him to press. You know those dome tweeters on the front? They had to be untouched, perfectly formed to form the right sound waves. Um, I'm not an audiophile, but that's what I'm told. He just crushed them both. (laughs) I fixed the DVD. And in that moment, I was... There was such rage in my heart. I couldn't believe how angry I felt with him. I sent him to his room weeping. He was, he was absolutely heartbroken. And, um, and then later that day, I was reading a... So when I was at, um, when I was at a Bible college, there was a teacher there called David Field. And one of the guys I studied with, um, Steve Jeffrey, um, co-ministered with David Field in the church for years. And he wrote 101 things I learned from David Field on his blog this week. And they're brilliant little insights and things. And, and I, one of them was... People matter more than things. And I read it the same day. It said, would you rather have, and it literally said this, would you rather have 10,000 pounds or five minutes with your child? I was like, oh my goodness. Woe is me. And uh, flipping neck. Well, can't I have both, Lord? Seriously. The question Jonah should have asked, the question you and me need to ask is, would I give up my stuff to save one more soul? I don't know that, you know, and I've, we talk about this semi-regularly. I don't know that that's what the Bible necessarily tells us to do. There's, n- there's, there's not much in the Bible that leads you to the conclusion that Christians cannot own stuff or live lives of relative comfort. But what we should be aware of is the, the deadly danger of caring more about your plant than about the city that you're called to. So easy, isn't it? For your life to become so askew. But remember Jesus. Remember his homeless life. Remember his determination to empty himself for your sake. To humble himself for your sake. To save you. Because he loves you. Here's the last thing. God exposes indifference, but he loves compassion. From our vantage point, Jonah seems incredibly deplorable as a man, doesn't he? Um, He cares more about the plant than the city. We talked about that. And grieves more at its demise than he does about Nineveh and its, its need for God. And then I think to myself, this is human nature. Think about the things that have upset you lately. Discounting the U.S. election, American brothers and sisters. Let's just push that to one side for a second. And think about the things that generally get your goat on a day-to-day basis. Aren't they almost always very personal things to you? Your job, your commute, your finances, your relationships, all that kind of stuff. And then you look up and think, what's happening in the world at the moment? Places like Haiti barely being able to rebuild itself after the wake of such terrible weather systems. Syria ripping itself apart 
in bloodshed and bombing. Even small things, like compared to that, like people, people's lives being destroyed in Croydon. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to belittle it, but I'm just saying there's stuff going on all around us that actually matters a great deal more than the problems we face on a day-to-day basis. But human nature is such that we, we get more upset and depressed about the things that are going on in our lives than about stuff bigger than us and outside of us, right? And Really, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot we can do about it in one sense, except we can look at God. And we look at him and see how utterly different he is from us. And I want you to see his compassion in the three ways that it shows us he is so profoundly different from us. And the first is this, that his compassion is despite his ability to see our hearts. Now, what do I mean? You think about this. When we dislike people, disagree with people, generally speaking, we think, well, the more that we get to know them, the more we get to understand their point of view, the more that we'll feel empathy with them and be able to love them and, and, and be alongside them. And that's certainly true to a point. You think about you know, the disagreements that have happened over Republican, Democrat, or over Brexit and all these kinds of things. You think the more we can just listen to each other and understand each other and know each other's life circumstances, then, we'll, then all our differences will seem less important and we'll love each other a bit more. And that is certainly true to a point. The greater knowledge is that you can imagine a curve. There's a greater knowledge. As you grow in knowledge of a person, you also grow in love for them and understanding. Until, until you're God, you would think. When your knowledge of people is so unfiltered that there is no way on earth he should love any of us. What I mean is, if you... Okay, think about your, the closest person in the world to you. Maybe they're actually sat with you right now. Maybe not. Whoever that person is, we, we love one another, don't we? But if you knew their heart, and if they knew your heart the way God knows your heart, no amount of empathy is going to get past the ugliness that you see there. How so little of what we do can be done in a truly selfless way, or how, how much we're self-serving, and how much, how much ugliness there is in our motivations and our spirits. Now, I, I praise Jesus, he's changing us. I'm not wanting us all to go out of here really glum and depressed and being like, man, I can't love anybody. That's not the point here. What, what I want you to see is that God, God sees all of that ugliness, and he has compassion. It says here, when Jonah tells God about his own character, he says, you're the one who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, Jonah's really depressed about this fact at the moment. I am not. I thank Jesus that he is slow to anger, because if he was quick to anger, I would be dead. His compassion is despite his ability to see our hearts, not because of his ability to see our hearts. His compassion, secondly, is enlarged even as the crowd is enlarged. Now, I'm trying to point to ways that he's different from us. Because as, as horrible as this is, this quote attributed to Stalin, I think there's truth to it when he said that one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic. We find it very hard. Our hearts cannot contain that scale of tragedy. We can't feel the way God can feel. 
But this book closes by telling us that when God sees Nineveh, he doesn't see a nameless, faceless crowd. He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. It's just one little verse in the Bible that tells you God cares about animals. But 120,000 persons. Now, I think of 120,000 persons, and I, I, can't, I can't think of that. It doesn't make any sense to me, a number like that. But God doesn't see a mob. He sees every individual. And this tells us something incredibly, profoundly important about his passion for the city that we're in. I don't want to set rural ministry off against city ministry, and there's a lot of guys who debate this all day long. A good friend of mine, Donnie, has just written a book about championing the cause for missions to the rural areas of our countries where a lot of people are neglecting to go. Absolutely, amen. But then I look at a city like London, I think, couldn't God say this about our city, our precious city? Shouldn't I pity London, that great city in which there are more than 8 million persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Not because they're stupid, because they haven't understood their basic need for me. His compassion is enlarged as he sees more people, not diminished. Here's another way in which he's different from us. His compassion can zoom in to the exhausting details of individuals and their mess. Think about your ability to love. Most of the time, I think we find it easier to fight for causes than we do to love our neighbor. I think about how easy it is for us to debate all day long, be passionate about issues around poverty, drug abuse, mental health, whatever. And much easier to talk about that than to love somebody who's poor, to love somebody who's in slavery to drugs or depression or schizophrenia or something like this. William Blake put it like this. He says, he who would do good for another must do it in minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel and hypocrite. So much of our love can become hollow when it isn't attached to real people and their messy needs. And then I look at God. And I look at him in this particular way. And this is the biggest message of the book for me. That while he can love a city, he can also love one stubborn little man with a bad attitude. That's how God's different from us. How he bears with Jonah. How he loves him even despite his deep character flaws and failings. A friend, you need to turn that around and think about your own life. Sure, I'm not sure we're that much better than Jonah most of the time. But praise God that we don't need to doubt his love for us, his commitment to us, his zeal to show us 
how we can grow and change and become more like Jesus. So, of course, I think God wants us to be more useful, more fruitful, more effective as missionaries to our city and this world. But I think God cares more about the state of your heart. I think he cares more about your humility, about your self-sacrifice, about your compassion. And so as we close this book, I think the right thing for us to do is, is call out to God, God have mercy on us and change us. Shape our hearts. Make us more like Jesus. That great shepherd of the sheep. That self-sacrificing saviour who humbled himself, who literally sacrificed his life on the cross for us, and now lives to make intercession, pouring out his compassion towards us. Can we stand together and respond in prayer? Living God, we thank you that you are relentlessly committed to us. And even though, Lord, our our minds and hearts are so often wrapped up with such petty things, uh, we're just so unable to see the world the way you see it, to see people the way you see them, to love in the way that you love. God, forgive us for that. We recognize that we are finite, limited, small creatures who are so wrapped up with ourselves. But Father, just as you've painted this picture of this man Jonah and then shone the light on our hearts, exposed things in us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you now give us the grace to, even just to slowly but to very definitely repent of these things, to become more like Jesus, the great Savior, who didn't stand outside the city willing its destruction, but who stood outside the city longing for its salvation weeping over the people in it and then willing to enter that city and die for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the matchless savior. Thank you that we don't have to have a savior like Jonah who's flawed and evil, that we have a savior who is totally flawless, beautiful, perfect in his love and compassion towards us. And so we confess our weakness But we ask you, God, give us greater measure of your Holy Spirit to change us, to make us more like you, and to give us the burdens that you have for the city that we're in, for the people, for our neighbors, for the needs around us. In Jesus' name, amen.